Revelation, 3 John. And uh, a few weeks ago, I told you I preached in a Bible conference where they gave us the subjects, lesser known characters in the New Testament. And I preached on Apollos and I preached on Gaius. And I am well aware that four years ago, four years ago, I preached three messages, two of them from 2 John and one of them from 3 John. A letter to a lady and a letter to Gaius. I'm well aware of that, so nobody has to come up and remind me of that. This is not that message, all right? It, it is not. It's not the same message at all. And um, the Lord gave me a thought the other day, sitting in a motel room or in the lobby, and I really want to give you that thought. And if I give you the thought first, if I give you that thought first, then it's a three-minute message. And, and I know you'd feel cheated and wouldn't get your money's worth, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give it to you last. So I'm going to preach a message, but you really want to hang on for the last three minutes. I, I promise you it'll be worth your money. Third John, third John. Second and third John, two postcards, two very short epistles by the Apostle John, two, two individuals. Second John is written to an unnamed lady. Third John is written to a named man. They're very, they're very valuable because these letters, though they're written to somebody a long time ago, they give us insight into the workings of the early church. And the, and, and the writer identifies himself in 2 John as the elder, in 3 John as the elder. He doesn't give his name, so we would assume that who gets the letter would know automatically who the elder is. By the way, good to see these young men sitting on the front pew. That's a blessing. These guys used to sit right there. They sure did, but it got too hot for them, and they had, they had to shift over a little bit. But I'm glad to see some young men that have taken their place. But I want to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something right now, okay? That there is an admission fee for sitting in these pews. When you sit on the front pew, you have to amen the preacher at least one time during the message. Give him at least one amen, okay? Because them people out there, they're not going to, all right? So, so you know, they didn't. They didn't. So they, you know, they moved over. You'll start to start, start watching them. Start, you start watching them going back. Then they'll be in the foyer. So, so I'm looking for one amen, one amen. So, so, so the writer identifies himself as the elder. They would know who the elder was. If I wrote him a letter to my daughter and just signed it, Dad, she would know who I am, all right? And so it wouldn't be necessary to, to give the name. Third John, second John is written to the elect lady and her children. So in some church in Asia Minor, there is a lady that's raising her children in truth. If you read second John, you will gather that this lady had a house, she had children, and she had a sister. Nothing is said about her husband, so she's either a widow, he's not saved, or John just didn't mention him. Then third John is written to the well-beloved Gaius. Gaius is an individual in a church in Asia Minor. It could have been the same church as the elect lady in 2 John. We don't know that. But third John is the most personal of John's epistles. First John is written to all believers in general. Second John is written to an anonymous lady and her children. Third John is written to a named man. First John has no personal references. Second John has anonymous personal references. Third John is the only book in which, or epistle in which John actually named people. Now, just like in the second John letter, and we'll not read that, there is a house church somewhere that John has connections to. We don't know where it was, all right? And, and to try to guess is just speculation. But we know from verse number 9 that John had written a letter previously to this church. So 3 John is actually 4 John. 
He had written a letter previously to the church. But there was a man in the church named Diotrephes, an influential man, intercepted the letter and refused to let that letter be read in the church. So John then sent some messengers to that church to see how it was doing. This same man, Diotrephes, stepped in and he wouldn't give them a voice. He wouldn't let them testify. He wouldn't let them get on the platform and wouldn't allow them any word in the church. And not only that, Diotrephes even spread rumors about the apostle John and threatened anybody in the church that receives these men from John, we're going to excommunicate you. We're, we're going to kick you out of the church. Now that's a bad deal. But there was a man in the church that would not bow to Diotrephes. His name is Gaius. He's the recipient of this letter. He receives the men from John. He takes care of them. He has a good testimony in the church. So the men go back to John and they give a report on what's happening there. And they also talk about Gaius. So John now writes this letter back to Gaius to thank him for his hospitality and to encourage him, I believe, to take a stand against the Diotrephes. Now, in every church, there must be Gaius. In every church, there might be a Diotrephes. Now, I wouldn't be so cynical as to say that there is a Diotrephes in every church. Because if there is, then, then we're all going to leave tonight and say, I wonder if it's him, I wonder if it's her, right? But, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that there's a lot of churches that have been torn asunder, ripped in pieces with just one Gaius, just one. It only takes one. And sometimes a church survives simply because there's one or two or three Gaiuses in the church that, allow, that, that, that will not allow diatrophies to destroy what God wants to do. That's Gaius. Now, I knew a lot about Gaius. I knew all about Gaius. But then I had to preach on Gaius. And so I studied the life of Gaius through the eyes of the Apostle John. And with what John writes to Gaius in this letter, there are three characteristics that really stand out to me about this man. The first one is this. It is the truth that characterized his life. Now, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John's concern is truth, truth. He mentions the word truth or true 20 times in those three epistles. And the reason why is because already in the first century, there are false teachers that are trying to infiltrate the church with damnable doctrines, and this last surviving apostle is zealous or jealous of the truth. Now, I'm aware, I'm aware that just a couple of months ago, I preached a message on what is truth. I'm fully aware of that. You don't have to come up and remind me of that. This is not the same message. Truth, truth is vital. In 1 John, in 1 John, he sounds the warning to the church in general that there are antichrists who are going to come and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 John 2 and verse 18, little children, it is the last time. As you have heard that antichrists shall come even now, there are many antichrists whereby we know that this is the last time. He says, who's a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. In chapter 4, beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So you can read 1 John and see 
Hey, there's false antichrists with the spirit of antichrist that are preaching these doctrines and denying Jesus Christ. It's it's Gnosticism, and, and that danger is already there. And so he's warning the church in general, in general, try every spirit. See if they be a God. See if they be God. When you come to 2 John, there's the same emphasis on truth. Only this time, that threat of false teachers has become very personal. I think in 2 John is a living example of what he warns against in 1 John. There is a real and present danger that false teachers get a foothold into the elect lady's house and buy it into the church, bringing their corrupt doctrine with them. You say, how would that happen? An evangelist who travels from church to church, like Brother Kendrick, has what is called an itinerant ministry. When you travel to another church, when I go out and preach meetings, It's always at the invitation of the pastor. And sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the church will take care of travel expenses. That's rare. But then they always, nearly always take care of your meals and your lodging while you're there to some degree. There were evidently a number of itinerant preachers that traveled that way in the first century. And those are the false teachers that the apostles warned against. Because when they came into town, They would present themselves as true ministers of the gospel. They would attach themselves to a church. They would get in. They would come to the fellowships, the barbecues. They would gain confidence of the people and then would begin sowing their seeds of destruction. When a preacher came to town, it was incumbent upon somebody to give him lodging. In that day, they didn't have Hampton Inn in every town. They had inns, but inns were really places of ill repute. It was a place of prostitution. It was no place for a preacher to stay. So, 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 so an evangelist would come into town, sometimes unannounced. So some member of the church would feel incumbent upon him to say, hey, you can come and we have an extra bedroom and you can stay with us. It is very likely that the elect lady of 2 John had done that very thing. She had opened her door to some itinerant preachers. It is also likely that the church is in her home. So bringing them into her home is like bringing them into the church. Very unwittingly, she could have been brought false preachers in. There was a danger that they take advantage of her hospitality to teach false doctrine in the church. That's the situation in 2 John. In 3 John, it is a different situation. 2 John, he warns, do not allow false teachers into your home. 3 John, he commends Gaius for allowing a true minister into your home. And the emphasis in both letters is on truth. Truth. Look, look at 3 John. Look at verse 1. Let me show it to you. The elder and to the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the Truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Are you beginning to get it? Gaius had truth in him. He walked the truth. He lived the truth. And here's what I want to emphasize to you tonight, this, this evening, is that you and I are people of the book. Is that right? We're people of the book. We believe, we believe that this book is absolute truth and as such, it is absolutely binding on your life and upon mine. Do you believe that? I believe that this holds true for every generation, 
every custom, every culture, every situation. There is no new philosophy, no new teaching, no new doctrine that they will ever come out with that will ever trump God's Word. And you've got to get that in your heart. We are saved by the truth. We are sanctified by the truth. We are judged by the truth. We are set free by the truth. We worship in the truth. We serve God in the truth. We rejoice in the truth. We speak the truth. We walk in truth. We desire the truth. We, I'm telling you, we are a people of the truth. And there's always been an attack against God's truth. I don't know if that attack has ever been any greater than it is right now. People don't want to hear the truth. Truth is fallen in the street in our day. Now, I'll tell you a couple of things about truth, all right? Back to 2 John. Truth is the basis of our relationship. Look at verse number 1 of 2 John. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I only, but also all they that have known the truth. The connection between this lady and Gaius, get this, is truth. The thing that brought them together in whatever relationship that they had was that they both believed the truth. There's a believer in one part of the world. There's a believer in another part of the world. And they met and they were united because of truth. That's a church. There are some of us sitting here tonight that have little else in common except that. If it was not for the commonality of truth, we'd have never come together. We'd never been friends. We call, but we even call each other brother and sister. What do we have in common? It's the truth of the Word of God. Now, we have friends, we have acquaintances outside of the church. But our strongest ties ought to be with those of like faith. Truth can be a closer bond than even flesh and blood. And I would say that even if, if you find that unbelievers, godless men, revilers, blasphemers, if you find that the ungodly are your favorite company, it calls into question your seriousness about Christ. You can have business dealings. You can be good neighbors. You can have interaction. You can have family. You can, you can live together. But how can you prefer the company of someone who denies Christ who died for you? Truth is the basis of our relationship. But then here's something good for independent Baptists. Truth must be balanced with love. Look at verse number five. Now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk after his commandment. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. So, so, so we're absolute, adamant, dogmatic on truth. However, truth must not be sanctified for some shallow, superficial love. Neither should truth make us unloving. See, the ecumenicalist thinks that love is all that matters. Don't let truth stand in the way. Just love one another. But some of us fundamentalists somehow think that you can't have both. It's either truth or love. Now, I'm here to tell you that truth and love can be mutual. That, that the more truth that you have, 
see, 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 some think that the more truth you have, the more right that you are, that somehow that translates into being mean and harsh and rude. But, but, I, but, I, but I beg to differ. I, I don't believe that truth makes us unkind. It doesn't make us ungracious. It doesn't make us inhospitable. Truth is to be held in love. Now, now in 2 John, the very next verse, verse 7, he's going to tell you who not to love. You don't treat everybody the same. When he talks about brotherly love, the false teacher is not included in that. If a man is going to deny Jesus Christ, I'm not going to wish him Godspeed. I'm not going to call him brother. I'm not going to act like we're all in this thing together. But that attitude should not be exhibited toward my brother in Christ. And I'm afraid that a lot of believers have loved not the world down really, really good. And maybe we need to work on the love on another part just as hard. Amen. John, John by the way, is speaking from personal experience. Did you know that when John first started following Christ, you know what his nickname was? Son of Thunder. He was a fundamental Baptist is what he was. You know, I've met a lot of sons of thunder. I have. He was such a son of thunder that he preached in a village, Joseph, and they didn't receive him. And he wanted to bring fire down on the village because they didn't come to the invitation. They rejected his message, huh? But I'm going to tell you, by the end of his life, the son of thunder has become known as the apostle of love. That son of thunder wrote more about love and less about judgment than any other apostle. How about that? Love is the, truth is the basis of our relationship and, and truth is, it must be balanced with love. Let me show you one other thing about truth. Truth is the barrier against false doctrine. Look at verse seven. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So in one verse, he says that we ought to love one another. In the very next verse, he says that there are some deceivers among you who deny Jesus Christ. So it's almost as if he's saying love, but don't love everybody. And you can have love and discernment at the same time. I'm going to tell you, there are some people that are just wrong. They're wrong. There are some preachers that are heretics. Now, everybody that disagrees with me that don't believe in, you know, the gap or whatever, that's not necessarily heresy. But there are some men out there that are heretics. If you listen to their preaching, it'll send you to hell is what I have. There are some men standing in pulpits that are dangerous, and you better stay away from them. We don't love, we, we don't love those who are in contradiction of the truth. It is a barrier. Truth is a barrier to false doctrine. Now, now I'm looking at Gaius. He's mentioned, he's mentioned truth four times in four verses. Gaius is a man whose life is characterized by truth. He loved it. He lived it. It permeated every part of his being. And that's where you and I ought to be. We are known as people of truth, not emotions, not feelings, not the latest fad. No, 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 no. Just truth. Just truth. It's interesting. Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy. And Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And here's what he told Timothy. He said, If I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. I wrote that to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In Ephesus stood the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That temple was surrounded and supported by 127 pillars made out of solid marble and covered in gold. And they said that each pillar bore the name of a king who had donated it in homage to the goddess Diana. So, so here's Timothy pastoring a church in Ephesus. And in the shadows is this great monstrous temple to Diana. And it's nothing but a monument to Satan and his lies. That's all that it is, is lies. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, your church, you, you are the pillar. You're the pillar and the ground of truth. So is your life characterized by truth? The second thing about Gaius in this little letter that I noticed, not only the truth that characterized his life, but then there is the testimony that commended his life. Now, I do not know the connection between John and Gaius. Had they met, were they old friends? I, I, I don't know that. But when these brethren came back to John, the brethren can't say enough good things about Gaius. And his character shines so bright because it's against the black backdrop of Diotrephes. Well, this is a good man. And I'll just point out a couple of things about him. He's a well-beloved man. Verse number one. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. Here is a man who has a good testimony in the church, in the church. In fact, in verse number three, he says, they have testified of the truth that is in thee. Verse 6, they have borne witness of thy charity before the church. That's a good testimony. Now, when we talk about having a testimony, we're usually talking about having testimony out there. Pay your bills. Show up on time at work. Your boss ought to know that you're a Christian and have respect for you. We talk about having a good testimony out there, and that's true. However, did you know that you have a testimony in here? Yeah, yeah. these are the brethren that are writing about him, not the lost people. And did you know that the brethren, that the cistern, sisters, you have a testimony. You have a reputation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean some are leaders, some are followers. So some are givers, some are takers. Don't die. I hadn't heard an amen yet. I'm waiting on it, all right? Some, some are loyal. Some are to never be trusted. So what is your testimony among the church? I mean, those who see you the most, can they see Jesus in you? What's your testimony? Not only that, but he's spiritually healthy. Look at verse 2. I love this verse. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. There is a hint that Gaius may have been sick, may have had health problems. Maybe that's why John mentions that. But if he is physically sick, he is spiritually healthy. You read verse 2, he's doing better in spirit and soul than he is in body. 90% of our prayer requests are physical. Right? 10% spiritual. 
And I don't, I, if you're facing a health issue, and many of you are, then let it be known. Let the church pray for you. But I wonder if our greater problems are not spiritual and not physical. I mean, how many times, how many times have we taken prayer requests, preacher, pray, pray for my, my, my ingrown toenail or, or pray for, for a surgery I'm finishing to have or something like that? Very rarely, very rarely would a man ever get up and say, say I just need the church to pray for my temper. I mean, I just got an anger issue and I can't get control of it. And yesterday was really, really bad with my wife and I've apologized to her, but wouldn't the church just pray that God would help me conquer my spirit? Well, that'll never happen, does it? Huh? Huh? You know, I've been harboring bitterness in my heart and, and I'm tired of it and I don't want to be a bitter person. Boy, preacher, y'all pray for my... No, we don't ever ask for that, do we? Huh? And, and here's, here's what's interesting to me is how John Faith phrases this. He says, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. I'm praying that you will be as physically healthy as you are spiritually healthy. As your soul prospers, that's how I'm praying for your body. Would you be okay if we prayed that for you? Huh? Well, that's what he's praying. If we all just sincerely prayed, God, would you just make us all as healthy as we are spiritual? Woo! <laughs> I don't know. I want that, to be honest with you. Huh? That's what he's praying. Spiritually healthy. He's hospitable. Look at verse 6. Which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Now, I've already mentioned the protocol. Traveling preachers, staying in the homes of church members. Inns are notorious places of debauchery. Preachers wouldn't stay there. So visitors are coming from out of town. Somebody has to step up and say, I've got an extra pot of beans. I've got an extra bedroom. You can stay in our bed. He has the gift of hospitality. He has opened his heart and he has opened his home. And when somebody was sick, it's gayest that a visit him at the hospital. And when some man is down, it's gayest that takes his lawnmower over and cuts his grass. It's Gaius. And it's not just having people over for dinner. He has his eye open to the needs of other people. He, boy, you preach a whole message on hospitality. Not only that, he's generous, verse 6, which in born witness of thy charity before the church. Now, this is such a simple thing. I'm getting ready to get to the good point here. But he is a giving kind of man. And here's what I want you to notice about this. There's nothing said about his wealth or lack thereof. So we don't know if he was a man of means, if he had any. We don't know because it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We have all these teenagers that have got new jobs and graduate and you get new jobs. Man, you're making good wages and, and blowing your money and wasting it and everything. I wish, I wish, I wish that somehow that we could teach, and, and I'm sure that they give, I wish we could teach every young man and every young lady in our church the heart of a giver. Because here's the thing about it. If you have the heart of a giver, it doesn't matter whether you have money or not. 
Giving is not dependent on how much money you have. Giving is dependent on how big a heart that you have. There are some men that are just geared to scheme to make another dollar. I'm not against business ventures. I'm not against that. But there are some men that's always, they're, they're always scheming. They're always thinking about that. Why don't you be the person who's quick to give? I'm going to tell you, if you, you guys, if you will cultivate that in your life, it will be one of the greatest blessings that you've ever had. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I don't know if I told you this or not. So I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, it, it, I'd gone to, I was staying, I was preaching morning and night, and so I, I went to a Cracker Barrel one morning to have breakfast. I went in early, hardly nobody there. They sat me at the back, back, so, so I'm in the back, and I always, when I, whenever I sit myself, I always face, face the crowd, face the door, because I've watched too many Westerns. Somebody come in and want to shoot you. I want to be able to see it. So, so I always, I, I can't sit to my back. I, well, that's true. I can't sit my back to the, to the audience. So, so, I, so I'm watching. And they bring an old man in. And he's sitting down in the chair. He's across the room, but he's facing me. Okay, he's the old man. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm eating. He's eating. And, and he's wearing one of them ball caps. You know, these, these old men wear these ball caps. It looks like, you know, Vietnam Veteran War here or something like that. But I can't, can't, can't read it. So, so when I got done eating, when I got done eating, uh, I got my check, and I, and I had to walk past his table to go out around the corner and, and go pay. And when I got up close enough, that ball cap, it said World War II veteran. Now, guys, there's not a whole lot of them left, to be honest with you. Not a whole lot left. And so I just stopped. And I said, um, were you in World War II? He said, yes, sir, sure was. He said, I was 21 when I went in, when they sent me over. I said, wow. I don't know why old people like you to guess how old they are, because when you get so old, you're proud of it. So he said, I was 21 when I went in. He said, guess how old I am now. I'm about to guess. I said, oh, you're at least 70 years old. He said, if I make it to December, he said, I'll be 93. I said, wow. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, in 93 years, in 93 years, have you ever heard about this man named Jesus Christ? He got the biggest grin on his face. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I met him a long time ago when I was just a boy. And I said, sir, I appreciate your service to our country. I really do. And I said, you don't mind if I pick your check up, do you? He said, no, that'll be fine. I paid for his breakfast. You ought to look for opportunities to do that. You ought to look for opportunities. Now, now you can't do it with your buddies because they'll take advantage of you, okay? You can't, you can't do it with y'all, okay? Understand. But here's what you ought to get in the habit of. When they lay the check on the table, lay the check on the table, pick it up. Pick it up. Because usually people just look at it. Hmm? Hmm? He's generous. This is a good man. There's a testimony that commends his life. Here's my last point, my last point, all right? There's trouble that challenged his life. The letter is to Gaius, but it is about Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is power hungry. He's a critic. He's dismissive of authority. One man with the spirit of Diotrephes in a church can cause so much damage. So look at verse number 9. He says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. He wanted authority. 
He wanted to be noticed. He wanted you to ask his opinion. This is a man who wants to have a say in everything. He is God's gift to the church. He's the expert in everything. Now listen to me. Some men are like that because they have preeminence everywhere else. Some men, when they have power outside the church, believe that they ought to have power inside the church. When you're used to being the boss in the workplace, it's hard to become a servant in the church. And so they're used to being the boss and, and they're used to, to, to giving orders and, and whatever status they have outside the church, they think that they deserve the same status inside the church. However, there are some people who want preeminence in the church because they have not achieved any preeminence outside the church. So if I could get some recognition here, some position here, some authority here to feed my ego. That's why, that's why it always amazes you that a henpecked husband can be so opinionated in church business meetings. His wife won't let him have any say at home, so he's trying to get some in the church. Oh, I've seen it a hundred times. Diotrephes is a proud, egotistical man in the assembly. I don't know the circumstances, but he is great in his own eyes. He is the kind of member who within 30 days finds the other disgruntled church member and feeds their discontent. And if you don't notice him, if you don't give him recognition, and if you ever commit the cardinal sin of taking him out of a position, you got trouble. That's diotrephes. Now notice what he does. He receiveth us not. In some business meeting, Diotrephes stood up and addressed the men. He said, I've heard some things about John, and I'm just not comfortable with him being here. And I just don't believe that we ought to receive John. I mean, you're talking about the last living apostle. You're talking about the last man of man alive that personally laid eyes on Jesus Christ. But John is a threat to his power. So in verse number 10, he is prating against us with malicious Words, it is characteristic of diatrophies to falsely accuse other people because he does not care about truth. He gains trust not by virtue of his own life, but by destroying people's trust in other people, or trust in other people, and it doesn't matter if it's false and it's unfounded and it's foolish and it's contrived and it's manipulated. Accusations that tear down the character of good men, that's diatrophies. In verse 10, he forbiddeth them that would and casts them out of the church. John sends men to check on the situation. And Dr. Fee said, if you have him over for dinner, we're going to kick you out of the church. He flexes his muscle. We're going to discipline you. And that's lording over God's heritage. And so the Bible, the Bible warns us against the it starts with arrogance. Arrogance breeds ambition. Ambition provides accusation. Accusation leads to assassination. But here's what I want to show you. Here's the three minutes. Aren't you glad you stayed with it for three minutes? Hope you're not disappointed. In the church, there's two men, Gaius and Diotrephes. Gaius loves God, and Diotrephes loves himself. And Gaius loves truth, and Diotrephes traffics in lies. And Gaius doesn't get nasty, and he doesn't get rude, and he doesn't get on Twitter and rant behind a fake account. Here's what he does. He keeps walking in truth. He just keeps living in truth. He doesn't get suckered in by the lies. He doesn't get discouraged and leave the church. But all the time that he's living a true life, doing good, 
showing hospitality, being a generous man, there is a nemesis who challenged him every step of the way. Diotrephes said, we're going to throw you out of the church if you have them in over. Gaius said, you come stay at my house. Diotrephes said that I've heard some things about John. And Gaius said, I know the man. That's not true. Diotrephes said, I'm going to be chairman of the deacon board and I want to sit on that committee and the church needs me. And Gaius said, how can I serve you? I don't need any recognition. And if you walk in truth, and if you try to govern your life by this book, and if you do good to all men, do not think that that will exempt you from trouble. And trouble comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. And trouble can come in body. Trouble can come in mind. Trouble can come from somebody sitting in that pew. It can be some nemesis who's never done anything for God. He doesn't know how to do anything but scorn, and he just wants preeminence. And what are you to do? Just keep walking in truth. Just keep doing what you've always done. Make sure that you maintain a good testimony with the brethren. Show hospitality. Be a giver. Love Jesus. Stay in church. Memorize another verse. Just keep giving out gospel tracts. Keep preaching on the street. Keep visiting the jail. Keep visiting the nursing home. Just keep reading your Bible and praying and walking with Jesus. Say why. Tell you why. Look at verse 13. I'm almost done. Very personal letter. John's writing to him. In verse 13, he said, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and paper write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee and we shall speak face to face. Now, John wrote that to Gaius. Can I paraphrase? Gaius, you're a good man. And I know that Diotrephes is in that church. He's all causing all kinds of trouble. And he tells Gaius back in verse number 11, he says, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. Gaius has so many things I'd love to tell you, and I can't right now. Just a quick letter, just a postcard. However, however, I'm going to come soon. Shortly, I will see thee. And, and we shall speak face to face. Don't get ahead of me. Everything I'd like to tell you, and everything that you'd like to say to me, we're going to have plenty of time. And face to face, we'll sit down and we'll just talk it all over. And I know that that's about John. It's not about Jesus. But I would just simply say, somebody's coming shortly. And we will sit down face to face. And he's going to talk to me, and I'm going to talk to him. Just keep walking in truth. Don't give any ear to the scorner because somebody's coming. And we'll see him face to face.